0: If you would please, though, turn in your Bibles, we're on our third installment of our summer sermon series through the first 12 Psalms, and we'll be studying Psalm 3 this morning. I believe it can be found in the Bibles and the chairs in front of you on page 448. So I would invite you to have God's Word open in front of you that we may delight in it together. This is the word of our Lord, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Lord, would you send your spirit now to open our eyes that we may see wonderful things here in your word. Open our ears that we may hear the truths of your eternal word. Father, show us our need for you, our need for Christ, through your word. In Christ's name, amen. A former professor and Bible commentator, Dell Ralph Davis, he actually preached through Psalms 1 through 12 once upon a time, and a book was written on his expositions. So when it came time for him to publish uh, this book, I'm sure the publisher came to him and said, Dr. Davis, we need a title for this this book that we're compiling that we plan to publish and put out there. So what title would he choose to summarize the truths that that are in these first 12 psalms? I love the title that he came up with. I'm not creative to come up with titles like this, but I think this title accurately describes what's going on here with these first 12 psalms, and the title is this. The Way of the Righteous in the Muck of Life. That's a million-dollar title right there, The Way of the Righteous in the Muck of Life. That's not the title that you would use to describe a Christian life that is just happy, happy, happy all the time, right? Uh, I'm sure Dr. Davis, when he read and studied these 12 Psalms and he preached them, he came away with the conclusion that life is not easy. In fact, life is often hard and difficult. Oftentimes, life feels like mucking along, slugging your way through trials, tribulations, hardships, disappointments, maybe even near-death experiences. So Psalm 3 for us, when we read it and we think about it in that context, it's real life, isn't it? This psalm, as do many of the other psalms, do not necessarily portray life as we would like it to be, but life as it actually is, oftentimes hard. One theologian remarked one time about the psalms, for every condition, there's a psalm. Or you could say for every emotion that we might experience, every trial that we might go through, there seems to be a psalm that expresses it in some way. This psalm, Psalm 3, is about trouble. Trouble. And the fear that we often experience when trouble arises. Let me give a few notes on Psalm 3 here as we uh, study this and make our way through it. These are things that we need to consider to understand what's going on here. The first is that this is actually believed to be the the first psalm in the, in the first book of the Psalter. So Psalms 1 and 2 are more of an introduction, and Psalm 3 kind of begins the, the first book of the Psalter. And it's the first psalm that we come to with a, a superscription. So if you look there in your Bibles, and pl- you're not going to see this unless you're looking on a Bible, so please look there. This is the first psalm that actually has what we might call a, a title. If you see it says there, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now when you see that in the Psalms uh, uh, throughout the Psalter, you need to understand that that is actually inspired Holy Scripture. So if I were to pull a Hebrew Bible out for you right now and you were to look at the Psalms now in the Hebrew, you would see that that actually would be if we were labeling it verse zero, okay? So that was not put in there by English Bible translations. That's actually part of Holy Scripture. Now, what you might see above in my Bible, it has at the beginning of Psalm 3, in bold face, save me, O my God. That's actually commentary uh, put in there by the Bible publishers to kind of help us understand a little bit of the theme about uh, this psalm, that's not inspired. But below there, when it says a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son, that's in the Scripture. That's part of the inspired Holy Scripture. Okay. The second thing we need to note about this psalm, uh, like most psalm, most all of the Old Testament Scripture, it was originally written in Hebrew. Okay, so that's the original language of our Old Testament Bible, the Biblical Hebrew language, and these psalms were actually meant to be sung. Now, we don't sing a lot of them. We sing some of them, but a lot of it is because we're not Jewish, and we don't understand some of the, the cadence and the rhythm that might come across in the Hebrew language, but most of the psalms have stanzas, okay? So, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see that we sang several hymns this morning, like, Oh, Worship the King, and there's some spaces between each four lines, because there's four stanzas, okay? So this psalm actually has stanzas like Psalm two, 1 and 2 did as well. And, and these set stanzas kind of help understand how the psalm kind of flows, okay? Much like the hymns we sing today. In this psalm, each stanza roughly consists of two verses. That's another important thing to remember when reading your Bibles. Verses, verse numbering, That's not inspired. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't put those there. Uh, Folks who translated the Bible put those there uh, years ago to help us uh, reference, to to, to go to a place in the Scripture saying things like chapter 3, verse 1, okay? Another thing you may notice as we read through this psalm, and you may have noticed something that I didn't read, and there was a Hebrew word that shows up at the end of stanzas 1, 2, and 4 you look out there to the margin of your Bibles and you may see this word selah or "selah." okay? Uh, we don't actually know what this word means. Many people will tell you they do know what this word means, but most of the Hebrew scholars that I know say that we don't know fully what this means. They say it's most likely a, a musical or liturgical marker, okay? So thinking about this being sung, uh, in a corporate worship service many thousands of years ago, uh, we would see that this was actually some kind of cue that the singers would take or that the musicians would take. If The musicians might think, okay, this is the point where Rick Dillon bangs the drum really hard, you know, <laughs> or, or, or John Summer plays a uh, extended uh, bluegrass solo here, something like that. Uh, it was some kind of cue, clashing cymbals, You know, to really get the point and let the singers and let the congregation think about what was going on here. Again, we're we're quite sure, though, that that word doesn't necessarily add to the meaning of Scripture. And so that's why uh, it's not read. It's thought to be a marker. The fourth thing I want to note about this psalm in particular is, as with all the psalms, they're not just a a random collection of, of old hymns that were kind of put into a barrel Uh, you know, kind of shuffled up and then printed out for us. Uh, They're they're actually very specific. There's 150 of them, and they have a very specific ordering and and very specific themes that come out in all of the Psalms. So, for instance, something to note here is that back in Psalm 2, we learn in verses 1 through 3 that the the nations were uh, raging. Rulers were conspiring against God's kingdom and against God's anointed one here in Psalm 3, we can understand from an earthly perspective that the nation's raging or the civil war being stirred up here would have been by David's son, Absalom, causing a civil war against, in, in Israel and against Israel's king. So here we have in Psalm 3 an, an example of this raging nation, this ra- these raging people against God and against his anointed. And so that brings us to the occasion for Psalm three, and that's why we read that this was a psalm of David, when Absalom fled when, his, when he fled from his son Absalom. Many of the psalms give us reasons for why they were written. Not all of them, but many of them do. And in Psalm three, we understood that King David was the rightful king in Israel, and he's being pursued by one of his sons, Absalom who in a sense was causing a civil war in Israel, and he was trying to overthrow his father's throne. That is the uh, episode that we read a little bit about earlier in 2 Samuel 2, but this entire civil war stirrings is going on in chapters 14 through 16 of 2 Samuel. You can go read that later. But think about that for a moment. Think about the occasion here for Psalm 3. David wrote this after his son was trying to kill him. So, has anybody in here had a bad day like that before? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's kind of good to get some perspective right here. That you know, David's only not his only son, but one of his sons was trying to to take over his kingdom. And not only was was this a a, a, a thirsty you know for power. You know, wicked son, but most importantly, his son was rebelling against Yahweh God. You see, David didn't take his throne lightly. He knew that he was anointed by God to be the ruler over his people. And so rebelling against David was ultimately rebelling against Yahweh God. Again, I'm not sure any of us has ever had a day as bad as this one. How terrible it was that David's son was so enraged, so consumed with pride and selfishness that he sought to usurp his father's throne. This is trouble of the worst kind. Of course, the trouble that is being described here about David and his royal hardships, it would be easy for us to read this and understand this context and kind of disassociate ourselves from this suffering and say, that well, that doesn't really apply to me. But that's not the way that the Scriptures work. That's not exactly what the Bible teaches us about itself. What the Bible says, and we confess, that all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. Every single word is God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. And so we know that it is all profitable for God's people. It all has it has application for us. It has instruction for us. So to be ultra sure that this is the case, David even ends this psalm by saying that it applies to all of God's people, as if to say, Yahweh, please extend your, your blessing and your protection on all your people who experience troubles. And so that's the context we need to think about as we work our way through Psalm 3, that this is Application for us in the Christian life as we experience troubles. And so this psalm, Psalm 3, instructs all of us to look to God in our troubles, to look to the Lord God in our fears, and noticing three things as we work our way through this psalm, that one, that it is he who protects us, that it is he who sustains us, and that it is he who saves us. So let's look first, it is God's protection for us in trouble that we look to. So when trouble comes, and here we have the context again, David's son pursuing him, many rising up against him to to come and to take his life and to take his throne, when the trouble comes, what does David do? What's David's reaction to this trouble, this hardship coming his way? He makes a profession of faith. That's what he does. He makes a profession of faith. What does he profess, or some might say confess? Specifically, he professes, looking there at verse 3, that Yahweh God is his shield. Look what he says there. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, a shield all around me. David doesn't have in mind one of those little small shields that we might think of a soldier holding with a shield in one hand and a, and a sword in another that most Bible commentators believe that this was a a probably a five foot tall shield, a shield tall enough and big enough and broad enough that literally a, a soldier could 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 get behind it and be fully protected you know hundred and eighty degrees of protection from any any onslaught from the enemy that might come at him. This is the type of protection that David has in mind that God provides for him. When the enemy comes, Yahweh God is a shield. But then he also says that you, O Lord, are my glory. He professes that God is his glory. The word for glory here in Hebrew signifies weightiness. Uh, something heavy in substance. Perhaps David was remembering from his Old Testament the glory cloud of, of God that went before and behind his people that provided protection for Israel wandering in the wilderness and that he protected them by his Shekinah glory as his people went into battle. Furthermore, David professes that God is the lifter of his head. See that what he says there? You lift my head. He finds no resources from himself. He's not trying to pull himself up by his bootstraps or he's not trying to well up in himself some inner strength, but he's looking to the Lord and you can imagine a father placing his hand under his son's chin and lifting it up and saying, I'm here with you, son. Lifting his head saying, cheer up, look at me. I will protect you. Do not be afraid. That is what David professes about his God. And then we see something that David does that should be a model for all of us. We see that God's protection extends to those who Cry aloud to him. Look in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. There's nothing like trouble and, and hardships and persecution and suffering that gets God's people confessing and praying out loud to God, is there? I think all of us would say my prayer life has never been better than when something hard, has come my way some difficult trial or decision is in front of me and that is what David does but what about you when trouble comes when suffering strikes when hardship faces you where do you turn in time of trouble where do you go for protection? You see, I think one of the wonderful things about Psalm 3 is here, it gives us a theology of how to deal with suffering. We have a a theology of how to deal with trouble that comes our way. We go to the Lord God. We cry out to him. We confess that he is our shield. He is our glory. He is the one who lifts our heads. He is the one who can Restore us. I had a dear friend tell me the other day, he was going through a lot of trials and a lot of suffering, tell me that all they can do right now is hold on to that promise that he will hold me fast. That is what confession and trouble looks like. Crying out to the Lord, saying, hold me. Be my glory. Lift up my head. Crying out to him. But it's worth being reminded here that David is not just crying out to just any God or any number of gods that might help us. He's crying out to the Lord God. I mentioned this last week. It's worth mentioning again. Six times in Psalm 3, you will see Lord spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps. Okay, That is an English way of showing the proper hebrew name of god which is yahweh or jehovah and what does that mean david is crying out to the covenant keeping god the god who said i am your god and you are my people i will protect you i am the one who made promises to you he's the one who swore by himself that he would keep his promises from his holy hill david referencing the temple here where the visible presence of god was where The sacrifices were made unto God where God revealed himself and showed himself merciful and gracious and loving to his people. God protects his people in trouble. But the second thing we'll notice in the third stanza here is God's sustaining love in times of trouble. According to the National Institutes of Health, More than 40 million Americans suffer from chronic long-term sleep disorders. And then another 20 million people report sleeping problems occasionally due to stress and anxiety. Anybody in that number? (laughs) Yes, amen, I see that hand. Does this not describe you? How many of us find ourselves at times restless? sleep-deprived because of stress and anxiety. How many of us struggle to get the rest that we need due to just worry and anxiety and troubles that we face every day? There are many remedies offered to us, especially in the medical world, to help us get the sleep and rest we need. There's lots of practical things that we can do, like shutting off our phones, quit watching so much TV and drinking caffeine. You know, there's practical things we could do but I think probably the most practical thing that all of us need to include in this remedy of restlessness is a theological remedy. We need to have a theological change, a a change of theology in our minds and our hearts, and David offers that to us in his experience in verse 5. Look at what he says there. And I love this promise. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Every one of us can claim that promise if you're here this morning. Now think about it. Dave, David was probably hiding out in some cave in the desert, and, and it probably was a real risk for him to go to sleep because he could have been killed in his sleep. But what allowed him to rest? It was knowing that the Lord God was sustaining him even while he slept. And even we, too, can claim that promise and know it, that we can lie down and sleep, that we can wake again because of God's sustaining love toward us. We are such worriers. We worry things to death. We worry things so much that we literally lose sleep over things. But we must remember, again, having this change of theology, Yahweh God, he never slumbers or sleeps. He doesn't go to sleep. He doesn't need rest like we do. This is a very important and key theology that we must hold on to. Because we were designed for rest and sleep, but God never does. He's always awake. He's always looking after his kingdom and keeping his people while they sleep. One of my children asked me the other day, Dad, do you ever get scared? Yeah, I do. But God never does. He doesn't have to lay awake at night worrying about what might happen because he's in control of all things, sustaining all things. God's sustaining love over his people. We can sleep knowing that we will wake again because God is keeping, protecting and sustaining us with his love. Additionally, God's sustaining love extends not just to our sleep, but look at what David says there in verse six: that he will sleep even though there are great numbers of enemies coming out against us. In Second Samuel, we read that David probably fled Jerusalem when he was being pursued by his son Absalom and his uh, his rebellion. David left with probably about 600 men, but it was proposed that about 12,000 men were raised up against David from Absalom's sympathizers. So think about that. He's got about 600 loyal folks with him fleeing, and Absalom has thousands coming at him, trying to take his kingdom. But David calms his own fears, again, with good theology here. Because he remembers, it is Yahweh God who sustains him, though many thousands are rallied against him. And this is a good reminder to us, right? That numbers are nothing where God is concerned. Numbers are nothing where God is concerned. He is the Lord of armies. His omnipotent power can dispose of millions as if it was only ten soldiers. God is that powerful in sustaining his people. And so strong confidence in God's power and protection is where our hope and where our comfort is found. What about you? What about you? Do you believe that God can sustain you in your suffering? Or are you like many who say, but you know, mine is particularly bad. Or mine is specially bad. No, no one's ever had to deal with suffering like me. Many of us think that. But God can overcome suffering even though it feels like thousands of enemies coming against us. He can overcome, and he will. But last, in verses 7 through 8, God's salvation extends to his people in trouble. The psalm ends with a prayer, a beseeching, if you will. David is begging God to save him and to deal with his enemies by striking them down. Dale Ralph Davis says, prayer is the only way we slug our way through troubles. Sometimes prayer is all we can do to just slug our way through trials and tribulations. So this whole psalm could be conceived as a prayer in times of trouble. This week I read from a a very helpful book of prayers called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers, very devotional. Uh, I encourage you to get a copy. Maybe we have one down on the bookshelf. But there was a a line in one of these prayers that I read that I think perfectly describes what fervent prayer for salvation looks like, especially in trouble. Prayer simply said, I beg thee. Oh, God, show me the arm of thy might. I beg thee, oh, my God, show me the arm of thy might. Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed like that? Arise, O oh Lord, save me, oh, my God. Have you ever begged God to help you in trouble? Have you... Truly humbled yourself and cried out to God for salvation, though it seems like many thousands have risen up against you. And David even begs God to do something that actually doesn't sound right to our modern ears. In verse 7, he begs God to strike down all his enemies, to destroy them, even kill them. But let's all, for a minute, pretend that, you know, okay, we don't have enemies coming against us. They're not armies literally going to come to your house this afternoon to, to punish you. We all experience spiritual warfare. We've all experienced trouble that feels like thousands are coming against us. Perhaps you're dealing with an addiction problem. Perhaps you're dealing with an anger problem. Perhaps there is a temptation that is facing you that you don't feel like you can overcome. Have you asked God to destroy it? Have you prayed, Lord, please destroy this thing in my life? Have you asked God for the strength to strike down that temptation when you are faced with it? Again, Davis says, biblically speaking, salvation can be a nasty piece of work. Biblically speaking, salvation can be a nasty piece of work. In other words, if you wish for sin and for troubles in your life to be dealt with, then don't expect it to be all neat and clean. It will probably be hard, it may even be bloody. Is that not the true gospel? Is that not how God radically dealt with our salvation from sin? That he sent his one and only son to die on a cross? That salvation was bloody for us. Why? Because salvation is messy. Someone had to die to save you from your sin. So, this psalm closes with a, a benediction, a praise, a, a thanksgiving, giving, and rightfully so, because if there's one thing the Bible declares for us over and over and over, is that, that God is in the business of salvation. He loves rescuing his people, and he saved us from our greatest trouble, our greatest problem ever, and that is our sin. And so knowing that God protects us, knowing that he sustains us, and knowing that he saves us, it's a great call. It's a grand call for thanksgiving and saying and professing, salvation belongs to the Lord. Have you noticed in this psalm that every verse demonstrates a strong confidence in the Lord? You know, I can't help but read this and think, Lord, I want to have a faith like this. I want to trust God like this. So the practical application from this psalm is not to believe in yourself. It's not to follow your heart. That's not the way we overcome trials and fears and temptations. And it's certainly not the way to deal with trouble in your life caused by sin. It is only turning to the God of hope that we can find blessing. And strength. It is the Lord who saves us. It is the Lord God who saves us. And so, the great foundation of peace and security and hope is in confidence in the Lord God, who saves us—the one who sent His only Son for our salvation. That's what this table before us means: salvation. Belongs to the Lord. It is is he who does it. Look at what he has done for us through Christ. His blessing is on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we praise you. And we thank you for the great salvation you have accomplished for us through Christ our Lord. Though troubles assail us, though sin besieges us, we will trust in you, knowing, O Lord, that you are the one who saves us. You are the one who sustains us. You, O Lord, are a shield about us. We thank you that all of that has been proven through Christ our Lord. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.